If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Should be pretty easy to find. It may not surprise you to hear that my prayer life is not what it ought to be. One of my main callings as a pastor is to pray for you, members of the congregation. And yet it's so easy for me to do, well, anything really, other than pray. It comes naturally to me. But prayer is part of my job description. And not just me. In some sense, prayer is part of your job description as well. It's the job description of all Christians, all people who follow Jesus. Let me tell you what happens when we pray. When we pray, we commune with God. That is, we spend time with Him. When we pray, we show our dependency on Him for all things. When we pray, we show evidence of our faith. Because prayer is an act that displays our belief in God, that He's real and that He loves us and that He cares for us. When we pray, we acknowledge the sovereignty of God, His complete and total power to accomplish anything that He so desires. When we pray, we're more often than not asking God to do things that we can't do ourselves. Half the things that we just prayed for in this prayer petition, things that we can't do ourselves. We pray that God would save someone's soul, that God would bring healing, that He would save a marriage, that He would sanctify a believer. Prayer, as John Omuchekwa has noted, should be as natural to Christians as breathing. In the same way that a human being needs to breathe in order to live, Christians should pray in order to survive and thrive in this world of sin. And yet we don't. It's not my intention to start this sermon series on the Lord's Prayer uh, to start it off on a, on a note of guilt, right? But we should be honest with ourselves and be honest with each other and admit that we don't really pray like we should. The reasons why we don't pray are many. Distractions. Maybe we haven't been taught well. I think one of the main reasons why we don't pray is because we don't know how to. On the one hand, God is like a father, and we should approach him as children. We shouldn't feel like we have to say the right thing at the right time in the right way in order to gain an audience with our father's ear. On the other hand, from what we're going to see here in the Lord's Prayer, it's, it's clear that there is a right way and a wrong way to pray to God. If, if you don't feel like you really know how to pray, I want you to know that you shouldn't feel alone. You shouldn't feel like a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God if you struggle with your prayers. In Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, the disciples come to Jesus 
And they ask him point blank, can you teach us how to pray? They didn't know how to pray. And this is how Jesus responds. He says, okay, when you pray, pray like this. And then he gave them his school of prayer. And so as we prepare to enter into this sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, I want you to be encouraged that for the next several weeks, we as a congregation are about to go through the Lord's school of prayer together. And like any school worth your time, it won't be easy. It will challenge us in many different ways. It's going to show us our inadequacies, our weaknesses, our deficiencies, our limitations. But more than that, it will help us to grow. There will be pains along the way, but there'll be growing pains. In the Lord's School of Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray prayers that maximally glorify God, to pray prayers that do the most amount of good for the church. He teaches us to pray in such a way that will do our own souls the most amount of good. Albert Moeller has noted that the Lord's Prayer takes about 20 seconds to pray, but a lifetime to learn. So keep that in mind as you are challenged week after week by the Lord in His school of prayer. As we begin, I want you to know that uh, one of my personal prayers as we get into this sermon series on prayer is I'm asking God to use this series to transform our lives together as Christians in this church. I'm asking that as He teaches us how to pray that we would become a holier people, a more loving people, a more patient people, a more obedient people, a, a people with more humility, a people who are more dependent, obviously dependent on God, a people who are increasingly hungry for the glory of His name as He teaches us how to pray. And then finally, I want you to know that just because I'm up here at the podium preaching these sermons to you on prayer, it doesn't mean that I assume that I am the teacher in this school of prayer. No, I'm just like you. I'm a student with his pen and paper in hand sitting at the desk eagerly waiting for the Master, our Lord Jesus Christ, to teach me how to pray better as well. So with that being said, uh, we're going to read the chunk of text that encompasses Matthew's uh, rendition of the Lord's Prayer. I assume that Jesus regularly taught this, uh, whenever he taught on prayer. In the Gospel account of Matthew, it's part of a larger body of teaching that we know of as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I'm going to be up front with you guys. Today's sermon is a little bit long. It's a little thick. That's kind of funny because even though we're going to read a whole bunch of verses this morning, I'm actually only going to preach on four words. The first four words in the Lord Jesus' school of prayer. So with that being said, let's read Matthew chapter 6. Verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired word. Amen? Father, be with us this morning as we listen to your word. Teach us to be a people of prayer when everything in us leads us to trust in ourselves rather than crying out to you in faith. Amen. You may not realize it, but the first four words in this lesson on prayer are perhaps the most important. The first four words of verse 5 read like this. And when you pray. You see the same thing in verse 7. And when you pray. These four words are at once an assumption, an expectation, and a command for all of the worshipers of the true God. Jesus, as He teaches on prayer, assumes that those who follow Him will be praying. He expects it. He even explicitly commands it. Look in verse 9. Pray then like this. Now this is the same sort of language that Jesus uses as He institutes the Lord's Supper. If you remember when Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper, He commands the disciples, you're going to do this. You're going to take the bread. You're going to break it in remembrance of Me. You're going to take the wine of the New Covenant. You're going to drink it in remembrance of Me. And then He says, as often as you do this, do so in remembrance of me. That as often as you do it, it's, it's language that assumes. He assumes that his followers will be regularly participating in this act. No one listening to Jesus as he teaches on prayer here on the side of the mountain, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, as they were sitting there maybe eating some figs and bread and dried fish, they wouldn't have been struck by the casual way that Jesus phrases this. It it just would have been normal to them to hear somebody say something like, and when you pray. To hear Jesus say, and when you you pray, would would be about as normal as to hear Jesus say, well, and when you eat dinner, and when you drink, and when you lie down and go to sleep tonight. It just wouldn't even have registered to them because the expectation was clear. The assumption was given. God's people pray. I'm not sure that that assumption is so natural to us. I grew up in a home completely devoid of prayer. Maybe you're like me and you didn't grow up in the church. You didn't grow up praying before your meals. You didn't grow up going to church. I remember the first time I prayed, I was maybe five or six years old. I was in a very sad, scary situation. And in a moment of desperation, I cried out to God and I asked him to protect me. Uh, I don't even know how I knew how to do that. I think maybe because at that time I was at a Christian school, I had probably learned it from one of my teachers. Uh, I didn't pray again until I was 14 years old. I got invited to a youth group, uh, and seeing as how I was only there to really hook up with girls, the odds that I actually meaningfully participated in that prayer seemed small. I didn't pray again until I was 18 years old, the night that the Lord Jesus saved me. I was on the side of the road, In the middle of the night, the weight of my sin came falling down on top of me, and I cried out to God in desperation. Three prayers in 18 years. Maybe that's you. 
But what I do remember about that night is the next day, prayer became instinctual. Prayer is something that I didn't think to do at all in my life for 18 years. And then the very next day after Jesus saved me, it became like my second language. I didn't know what to pray. I didn't know how to do it. But I began to talk to God all of a sudden, whether I was thinking about money or health or other people's situations, their souls, my own saints. I just knew I needed to talk to God. I knew I needed to be in regular communication with him. I still remember the first time I read Romans 8.26. It was so helpful for me as a young Christian who was so totally ignorant on how to have a relationship with God. Listen to what Paul says about maybe people like you, like me, who don't really know what to pray. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. You've probably been there, right? You, you know you need to pray. You feel driven to prayer. You feel compelled to pray. But you get down on your knees and you close your eyes and nothing. You don't really know what to do. You don't know what to say. But the promise here is that the Holy Spirit will help us and He'll guide us in those moments. In that dark corridor of prayer, we, ne- we may not be able to see our hand in front of our faces But the Holy Spirit comes and grabs us by the hand and leads us down through the darkness. He is our light and our guidance. Paul later, a couple verses after this, calls the Spirit the Spirit of Christ. This is the same way that Paul refers to the Spirit in Galatians when he teaches us why we even pray in the first place. Listen to what Paul says about what even compels us to pray. He says, Because you are sons... God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The only reason you even know to cry out to God, the only reason why 18-year-old Sean, for the first time in his life, began to talk to God was because He sent the Spirit of His Son inside of me to lead me to cry out to God like my Father. And so it makes perfect sense That the Spirit of Jesus, who not only leads us into prayer, also guides us along in our prayers. And this makes all the more sense when you consider Jesus' example of prayer in His own personal ministry. Something interesting for you to do one day might be to read through a gospel. Maybe pick like the Gospel of Mark. That's a short gospel. And just look how often Jesus is praying. Prayer as retreat and restoration after a busy day of ministry with the crowds and the multitudes. Jesus prays as a form of communion with the Father. When He spends more time with people than with God, He makes time to go be intentional with God. Jesus prays at His baptism. Jesus prays in the wilderness when He's facing lack and destitution. Jesus prays to fight temptation when He's going at it with Satan. Jesus prays for His disciples. He prays that they'll be protected and persevered in John 17. Jesus prays for healing on any number of occasions. Jesus prays prayers of gratitude to the Father. Jesus prays as a prayer of preparation as He's getting ready to go to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays on the cross as He is suffering. Jesus, the God-man, was totally and utterly dependent upon the Father as He walked the earth and carried out the mission that God gave Him. And He depended on God through prayer. Is it any assumption then that He assumes that 
we as weak, infallible, and fallen creatures will also regularly be in prayer. However much Jesus needed to commune with the Father, we need that infinitely more. However much Jesus needed to be restored in prayer, however much Jesus needed solitude, we need that infinitely more. However much Jesus was dependent on the Father, we are infinitely more dependent on Him in literally every way. Jesus knew that the success of His mission on earth was dependent upon His prayer life. And it is my great shame to tell you all and to try to be as honest and transparent as possible that I'm not sure I believe that. I want to. You know, I'm like the centurion. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. If I really believed it, I'd be praying more. The first thing that I did in a moment of panic or discouragement or anxiety would be to cry out to God. But it's not. It's to try to figure out a solution on my own. Jesus knew that the most important thing to do when... He was slammed and so busy, it was just to stop and pray, to make time to pray. I think Martin Luther understood this. That's why one time when somebody asked him uh, how often he prayed, or excuse me, how much he prayed, he said, well, I pray about two hours every day unless I'm really busy, and then I pray three. Jesus knew that the most important thing to do for his disciples before leaving them was to pray for them. Jesus knew that the most important thing for him to do before going to the cross was to make time to pray. When Jesus says the words, and when you pray, he says them as a subject matter expert, as somebody who has lived this life of prayer. He knows what it means to always and ever be praying. Now, if you want to know how Jesus was understood by his disciples as he taught them about prayer. All you have to do is just keep reading past the Gospels, into Acts, into the rest of the New Testament. It's the same thing with the Great Commission. If you want to know how the disciples understood the Great Commission, you read the book of Acts and it becomes clear. They went out and they planted churches. They preached the Gospel, planted churches. Preached the Gospel, planted churches. Well, if you want to know what, what the disciples heard Jesus saying when he said, and when you pray, you just... Go through Acts. Go through the New Testament. And we will. Immediately after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, you see that His disciples return to Jerusalem, and the first thing that they do is begin to pray. Acts 1.14, They all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. The first thing that they do. If you keep walking through the book of Acts, you see that the first instinct of the disciples is almost always to pray. And when it's not, it's when they're messing up. When they need to find a successor for Judas, the first thing that they do is get together and pray. After Peter's famous sermon in Acts 2, the text tells us that 3,000 people get saved and they get added to the number of the church. But what do these 3,000 brand new converts do when they get together when they join the church? Well, Acts 2.42 tells us, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Prayer for boldness. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were released by the chief priests, and they went back to the people and they reported what they had said. You know, hey, they told us, listen, if we keep preaching, they're going to lock us up again. You know, it's going to be bad. And the first thing that everyone does when they hear this bad news is they begin to pray. 
And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. In Acts 6, you see that the, the apostles are dedicated to the work of praying and to preaching. An issue arises with the widows. It's going to distract them. So they appoint the first deacons so that they can make sure that they keep preaching, yes, but so that they can continue to pray. Now, don't, don't get confused here. Don't make a categorical mistake. The apostles didn't view prayer as more important than practical needs. The apostles viewed prayer as the most practical need. Stephen cried out to heaven in prayer before he was stoned to death. We see prayers for miracles in Acts chapter 12 when Peter was in prison. We see that as soon as he's in prison, the brothers and sisters begin to pray earnestly for him. The Lord heard their prayers. He was released from prison. And when he goes back to report the good news to the brothers and sisters, guess what he finds them doing? Praying. You see, Paul and Barnabas were prayed for before they were ordained for their missionary journey. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. There was prayer before conversion with Paul and Silas. They were praying and singing in the dungeon before the earthquake that led to the centurion's salvation. You see prayers of committal. Paul, after spending how long with the Ephesian church? Like three years? He gets down on his knees and he prays with them before he leaves. You see prayer in the midst of disaster in the shipwreck in Acts 27. You see prayer for healing among other places in Acts 28 where Paul prays for the healing of Publius. It's just in every situation, the first instinct is to be praying. In Paul's epistles alone, it seems like, it seems like he can't go five seconds without bringing up prayer. He's either telling his readers that they need to pray for him or that he is praying for them, or that he has prayed for them, or he just kind of interrupts his flow of thought to break forth in prayer. Prayer is like Paul's natural default mode. Paul prays for the providence of God to allow him to go to Rome. He says, for God is my witness as to how, listen, unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul prays for the salvation of his kinsmen, in Romans chapter 10, he says, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Paul prays for their unity. In 2 Corinthians, one of the things that we don't think about much with the thorn in the flesh passage is that Paul says he prayed three times that it would be removed. His first instinct to try to get this thorn in the flesh out of his flesh was to pray to ask God to do something with it. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says that he doesn't ever stop praying for them, which is extremely convicting for me as a pastor because I think of how often I don't pray for you. He says, I don't cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And then when you go on and you read his prayer, it's just, it's just such a good prayer. It's, he's praying for the most important things in their lives. In Acts chapter 6, no, <laughs> in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul prays, and he calls on the Ephesians to pray with a warrior's resolve. Listen to the language. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all purpose, perseverance and petition for all the saints. A lot of all, always, persevere. Paul tells the Philippians that he prays for them joyfully. His, 
his prayer for his people, it's not a burden. It's not like, oh, well, I guess I'll get the membership directory out again. All right, who is it today? No, he says this. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. When I think about you, I I feel joy in my heart, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all. When Paul the pastor gets into his counseling mode and he goes to shepherd the Philippians about their anxiety for him, he doesn't say, okay, tie a piece of string around your finger and then touch that string anytime you begin to get nervous. No, he, he offers prayer as a, as a solution to their anxiety. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul tells the Colossians that he prays prayers of thankfulness for them. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. There's that language again, always, always. Later, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God leading to obedience. Listen to what he says. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of him. He also tells them to pray like this. Devote yourself to prayers, keeping alert in it. Keeping alert. When I was in the army, we used to have to be on guard duty. And one of the favorite things for like the drill sergeants or later the regular sergeants to do would be to come and to find you sleeping on your duty, right? And they would make you pay. And it was because uh, if you're found sleeping, somebody could die. And this is that same kind of imagery, same kind of language that Paul uses here, the the language of somebody standing guard because it's really that important. When you pray, do so, keeping alert like it really matters, like something is really at risk here with an attitude of thanksgiving. And we could keep going. Paul in 2 Timothy prays a prayer for Timothy's ministry. James tells believers to pray for wisdom. Peter tells believers to stay sober. He doesn't mean don't drink, although that may be entailed in it. What he means is keep a level mind. Don't be distracted. Stay focused. And when he tells them why, he says it like this. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Don't get distracted. In 3 John, the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John prays for every kind of health for the church. He says, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. So he's not just praying for spiritual things, he's praying for everything. He says, I want everything to prosper in your life the same way that your soul is prospering. Jude identifies prayer as a means of building up the body. How do you build a healthy church? He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. As Will prayed to us this morning, twice in the book of Revelation, The prayers of the saints go up as billows of smoke before the nostrils of our God. The second to the last verse of the Bible, the very last sentence, perhaps in the Greek, is a prayer. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So, if you're inclined to ask, when should we pray? If you're inclined to ask, well, I wonder what Jesus meant when he said something like, and when you pray. I think in light of Jesus' example, in light of the example of the apostles, in light of the clear teaching of the New Testament, a better question is, when should we not be praying? 
Prayer is everywhere in the New Testament. Assumed, expected, and commanded. Why do you think we spend so much time praying in the local church? One of the things that I, I've heard from visitors is, do you guys normally pray that much? They might be happy that we, now we've cut out a prayer of praise and a prayer. We only do one or the other. We're going to go back to it. We just don't have enough people to be regularly doing both. But we do that because we don't think that Jesus only expects that individuals be praying. He expects that the church be praying. We're going to see in a couple weeks, but maybe you haven't noticed that the Lord's Prayer is actually not a prayer just for individuals. It's, it's primarily designed for corporate prayers. You ever considered the language before? You don't say, my Father who is in heaven, give me this day my daily bread. No, what do we say? Our Father who is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. It, it sounds like it's supposed to be prayed with the family, with the body. It's not just Jesus' expectation that individuals be praying, but that the church. One of the pastors down in the jungles of Peru, a very godly man, very intelligent, absolutely equipped in every way by the Holy Spirit to do the work that he was called to, has zero education outside of uh, learning how to read, once told me, Hermano Miguel, that's what he called me in Spanish, a church that doesn't pray is already dead. And I think he's right. That's why every Sunday we have an opening prayer, which is really what that moment of silence is supposed to be, right? You're supposed to kind of take a moment, pray, ask God to kind of prepare you to, to, to just leave everything from the week behind and worship him. We have a prayer of praise or a prayer of confession. Hopefully we'll go back to doing both. We have a pastoral prayer. We have a prayer after the introduction to the sermon, usually a prayer when the sermon closes. You know, it's because we understand that it's not only our responsibility, but it's our privilege to go before God in prayer. Now, having said that, I think it's clear, right? Prayer, we need to do a lot of it. I'm going to spend the next several weeks teaching us how to pray better, but for the rest of this sermon, I just want to give us some practical help to pray more. Right, we'll, we'll work on the quality. We've got to do a little work on the front end on the, on the quantity. If you like simplicity in preaching, you're going to love this. This is, uh, this is bread on a piece of dry toast on a paper plate with a glass of water. Okay? So here we go. Note takers, i got ten points. That's a nice round number. I didn't even plan on that. Ten points. Oh, did it end up going to 11? I don't know. 10 or 11 points to help you match Jesus' expectation and assumption and command that you be regularly praying. Number one, three squares a day. Three squares a day. As a young Christian, I wouldn't pray over my food. I thought, oh, that's what... That's what American Christians do. You know, I thought it was kind of legalistic. I thought it was, you know, rigid American Christianity. It wasn't until I got a little older and real life began to crowd out my prayer life that I stopped seeing prayer over meals as something that's legalistic and rather started seeing it as an opportunity to stop, pause everything else that's going on the rest of the day because I'm stopping to eat anyways and to take an opportunity to pray to God. Three prayers a day I have right there if I just stop and pause and pray. Now, maybe if I were more sanctified, you know, I wouldn't need to have kind of these built-in mechanisms throughout the day. But as it stands now, 
I find it incredibly helpful to have three opportunities to pray every day. Now, when I pray over meals, I try not to pray prayers like, good food, good meat, good God, let's eat. I try not to pray those kind of prayers. Now, occasionally, there is a plate of tacos underneath my face while I pray, and I trust that the Lord is satisfied with short prayers in that moment. Nevertheless, I try to be more intentional. Let me give you an example of something that I might pray for over a meal. Lord, we praise you for reminding us that we are not like you. We have to eat in order to be sustained, but you are a self-sustaining God. You don't need anything from outside of yourself, and so we praise you in light of that. Amen. And then we put the tacos in our face. Lord, thank you for giving us food to eat and a warm house to eat it in. We remember our brothers and sisters all over the world who even now may be starving and hungry. Lord, we rejoice to know that one day they will be feasting at your table with you for heaven, in heaven forever. Please comfort them now if they are going hungry. See what I mean? If you're intentional, if you just take the time to think a little, your prayers before your meals don't have to be bland and boring and rote, legalistic. It can be meaningful. On top of that, there's the good old-fashioned morning and evening prayers. I'm throwing this in under the three meals a day kind of thing. Uh, you know, praying when you wake up in the morning. I prayed this morning before I got out of bed. Lord, please help me get out of bed. No, I prayed something better than that. But some mornings I do pray that. And if you get slammed into reality by your alarm clock at five in the morning, you probably have to pray that some mornings as well. Pray before you go to bed at night. If you pray three meals a day and once when you wake up and once you go to bed, that's five times a day that you're praying. Now listen, I know that God isn't looking for a count. I know that praying five times a day is not necessarily, necessarily more humble and godly than praying two times a day, right? I recognize that we can be little Pharisees and we can go, uh-huh, prayer number five, nailed it, God's got to be happy with me. Right? That's not what I'm trying to do here. All I'm trying to do is let you know that if you're struggling to pray more, it doesn't have to be that complicated. Right? I'm trying to let you know that maybe your grandmother's wisdom was wiser than you thought it was. Maybe you thought it was old-timey, dried-up folk religion, but it could have just been a well-trained spiritual discipline that you just were too immature to recognize. And if you're nervous about praying X number of times a day because maybe you think it's not biblical, uh, it is, though. In the, it is, though. In the book of Daniel, we see that it says that he went up three times a day to pray, facing towards Jerusalem with the window open. And it says that, it says that, and he did it as he had done previously. So it was his custom to do that. In the book of Acts, we see at least two of the disciples, Peter and John, and it was probably common for all of them, that they went up to pray at the temple during the pre-assigned hour of prayer, which is the ninth hour. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So, brothers and sisters, the, the problem isn't discipline. The problem isn't schedule. The problem is our heart. Our heart can take discipline and take schedule and turn it into a legalistic thing, but it doesn't have to. If you're wise and if you're humble, you can take those opportunities and use them well for the glory of God in your prayer life. Number two, a call to prayer. I worked for a pastor who would have an alarm that would go off on his phone twice a day, and no matter where he was doing or what he was, no matter where he was or what he was doing, he would try. He couldn't always do it, 
But he would try to stop, close the computer, put down the book, whatever, and go pray. 5, 10, 15 minutes, that sort of thing. And he did it because as a pastor, he realized that he was being pulled in a thousand different directions. And it was just helpful for him to have a reminder, right? Um, I get it. If you do something like this, it, it may not always be possible. You know, a line could be blown for Cody and he's got to get out there. It's an emergency at two o'clock when his call to prayer goes off. But most of the time, if we're willing to let it work in our lives, a call to prayer can be incredibly helpful. Alarm, email notification, a call from your wife. Number three, make a list. Make a list. You don't have to. All these are suggestions. You don't have to do any of them. They're just suggestions that I found helpful, that Christians for thousands of years have found helpful. It may not be helpful for you, but maybe make a list. You may be thinking, make a list really? Like, man, is this the, is this the best we have to offer? Well, why don't you try it before passing judgment on it? Right? Like, just go home and write down five things that you think you should be praying for, and then put it on the kitchen table and try to regularly pray through it. That's one of the things that's so helpful about the prayer guide, the church directory, the prayer guide. You can just have that on your kitchen table and you can just pray for it. My wife has it with her Bible and her morning devotional. She keeps it right there. She opens it, uses it to help lead her and guide her. It kind of functions as a list. If you're the kind of person who thrives on structure and organization, the list is like, boom, right up your alley. If you're like me and you're the kind of person who, uh, you know, just uh, cringes at the thought of being organized... Uh, you probably need this more than anyone. Number four, use the Lord's Prayer. Terry Johnson has noted that perhaps Jesus intended the Lord's Prayer to be prayed on a daily basis. Where did he get that from? Well, from the language of the prayer itself. It says, give us this day our daily bread. That sounds like something you're praying on a daily basis. You don't have to memorize it and recite it by rote, you're certainly welcome to. Uh, I don't think there's any shame whatsoever in praying pre-written prayers that were penned by the hand of Jesus himself. Or you can use it as a template, and hopefully you'll be more equipped to do so after this sermon series. But consider using the Lord's Prayer as a guide. Number five, consider getting rid of social media. Consider getting rid of social media. At, at the least, consider taking it off your cell phone. Have you ever been two pages into a book that you've been really meaning to read and all of a sudden you realize that you can't concentrate because you just want to pick up that phone? You just want to pick up that iPad? You just want to open that computer again? You're 20 seconds into a prayer, you're like, all right, today I'm really going to give it my, you know. And 20 seconds into a prayer and all of a sudden, you can just start to see the red dots flash. Two, three, my email's going off. You just, that's what social media does to us. It, it trains us. And Ms. Janice is shaking her head. I praise God, sister, that you're from a generation and that's not a problem for you. But as you're raising your children, you should know this is absolutely a problem. Social media is training us to think 140 characters at a time or whatever the new limit is. You know, whether it's a GIF or a meme, Right? GIF meme, a little video on Facebook. You know, when you see a video nowadays on YouTube and it's like 10 minutes, you're like, 10 minutes, ugh. Nobody has time for a 10-minute video. You know, you see a little 30-second thing, you're like, yeah, this is my jam. I can focus for 30 seconds. Social media is training us to have uh, the inability for sustained focus and reflection. 
The ability to work our way through a chapter of a book alone, not to mention the entirety of a book, is diminished by a thousand percent compared to our parents and grandparents. Right? We can go from politics to funny cat memes to uh, you know, celebrity drama back to politics in under a minute. That doesn't help you to take our Father who, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name, and then to focus on that for like 20 minutes and just to pray about that. Just, Lord, I want to pray, take time to have a sustained time of prayer for the glory of your name. No, it's like, I need to start thinking about cat memes again. Uh, If you're afraid to get rid of social media, I want to challenge you to just try it for a week or maybe a month and just watch how freeing it is. I mean, really. Now, everybody who does it is like, man, it was so good to not be on social media. And then the first thing they do is like, but I can get back on, and this time I'll have control. I'm not saying I've ever been there. But just try it for a month and consider it. And then, if nothing else, take it off of your devices and try to give yourself a break there. Number six, walk in obedience. Uh, This is a little less practical, a little more theological, but theological is actually quite practical. So, On the one hand, we have to remember that prayer is an experience, right? We're communing with the Father. On the other hand, we have to remember that prayer is something that we've been commanded to do. And whether we feel like it or not, whether we're in the depths of the joy of the Lord at the moment is kind of beside the point. We should be doing the things that God has commanded us to do. I mean, the Great Commission says, go and teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Right? This is part of the Christian experience. But maybe it'll be helpful for you to be more obedient to know some of the things that Jesus has specifically commanded you to pray for. So I'm just going to walk through some of them. Jesus commands us to pray for missionaries, to pray for laborers in the field. He says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus tells us, uh, through the author of Hebrews, that We need to remember those in prison as if you were together there with them. In Matthew 5, we are shockingly told to pray for our enemies. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says that we need to pray against temptation. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Matthew 26. We're told to pray for our troubles and for our healing in James chapter 5. Is anyone among you in trouble? I love that he doesn't specify. In trouble in what way? What In any way. Is anybody in any kind of trouble? Let him pray. And then he says, pray for each other so that you may be healed. We are commanded to pray for the spread of the gospel. Listen to Paul's language here. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as is happening among you. I love that. That's one of the things that I prayed before, prayed before we went to the mission field. We said, Lord, let your word speed ahead, among, uh, uh, speed ahead before us and get down there before us and prepare people's hearts to receive the gospel. We're commanded to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We're called to pray for those who preach the gospel. I don't know if you regularly pray for your pastors, Uh, As a pastor, it might seem like a conflict of interest here, but uh, it's just what the plain teaching of Scripture is. To that end, no, excuse me, pray at all times in the Spirit and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth 
boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. We're strongly encouraged to pray for wisdom in James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. In the Lord's Prayer, we see that Jesus commands us to pray for, the name, for His name to be exalted, for food to be provided, for forgiveness to be granted, and for His perfect will to be accomplished. And this list, I'm sure, is not exhaustive. So maybe why not write down some of these things? You know, missionaries, uh, our pastors, the persecuted, and just and put them in like the front of your Bible. And as you're doing your devotionals, if you're struggling to find something to pray for, just flip on over to something that God has commanded you to pray for. Maybe have it as part of your list and use it in your family devotionals. You know, be as creative as you want to be. Uh, Number seven, broaden your horizons. Broaden your horizons. Most of the time when we feel like we don't know what to pray, it's because we don't know what to ask God for. And part of the problem here is that we think that prayer is only asking God for things. It's, It's only petition. And I understand why we might think that, because a lot of the teaching on prayer is prayer petition. You actually see that in the Lord's Prayer. The majority of what He's telling us to do there is to petition things. But you can see that there's there's more to prayer than just asking for things. Prayer of confession, which we regularly pray in here. Listen to Psalm 32.5. Listen to the psalmist pray. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Don't know what to pray for? Maybe just consider your day and think about some of the ways that you might have not walked in the fullness of obedience and and just confess it to God. Prayer of praise. The title of Psalm 27 is A Prayer of Praise. So if you don't know what to pray, maybe just think about God and how amazing He is and how awesome He is and just tell Him about Himself. You know, when we were... When we were in rebellion against God and at our weakest moments as Christians, we like to tell God all the bad things about Himself. You weren't there for us, etc. But at our best, we can look at God and we can say, Lord, You are sovereign, You are kind, You are gentle, You are patient. And we can just continue to heap praises on Him for who He is. As Will mentioned in his prayer of praise, we have the opportunity to pray prayers of lament. What does that mean? It means when you're sad, you can tell God about it. When you're broken, you don't have to hold it all in. Even if you're having a hard time telling somebody else in your life, you don't ever have to feel bad about talking to God about your brokenness. Again, listen to the word of the psalmist in Psalm 142. He says, In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and the left and see, there is none who takes notice of me. It's just a very emo kind of prayer. Nobody sees me. Nobody cares. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. So if you're struggling to pray because you don't know what to ask for, remember that prayer is more than asking for things. Number eight, get a prayer partner. Get a prayer partner. I was talking with a brother this past week about his prayer life, and we kind of admitted to each other that our prayer lives haven't been where they ought to be. And so we agreed to make a list of things that we can pray for each other about, and we're going to pray about those things and then meet back up and talk about our, our prayer stuff and other stuff. Yeah. Get a prayer partner. Number nine, write out your prayers. Now, this was a suggestion from a friend. Uh, this is, when he said it, I was like, oh, yeah, there are people like Amber in the congregation. You know, this is, this is a suggestion perfectly built for somebody, like, who, rather than, like, having an argument, goes, 
I need to journal. You know, that sort of thing. I need to sit down and write it out. I need to put it in an email to clarify my thoughts. This is you. This is a suggestion for you. When you write out your prayers, it allows you to slow down, right? Just the, just the writing just slows you down. It allows you to, your, your thoughts to crystallize more easily. Um, it enables you to be more thoughtful. It, it also gives you an opportunity to look back and to see the ways that God has answered your prayers, right? You can go through your prayer journal and say, man, I was praying that God would save that person, and man, it's been seven years, and they're saved. Praise God for that. Number 10, spend time in the Word. Ah, oh, there is 11. Dang it. All right. Spend time in the Word. There is an inextricable link between your understanding of the Bible and how healthy your prayer life is. And when I say understanding, I don't mean you're, you being a theologian, uh, you know, knowing all the fancy words and, and all that. What I, what I just mean is the more time you spend in the Word, the more you tend to understand God. You understand God better. You understand yourself better. And when you understand uh, those two things better, you tend to pray more. You see how amazing God is. You see how much God loves you. You see how much he desires to do you good. You see yourself more clearly. You see how broken and needy and sinful you are. And that just should lead you and compel you to pray. Guys, there's not one square inch of your life that doesn't depend wholly and entirely upon the grace of God at any given moment in time. And when we understand this truth deep down in our bones, our prayer lives will change. Uh, I think this sentiment is at the heart of Psalm 42, uh, where we read the words, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Right? And that's not just like, ah, oh, it's kind of a hot day, I sure would like some water. This is a deer who's about to die. Exhaustion, heat has taken it out of him, he's about to die. And he's saying, I pant for you, I, I need you, God, because if I don't have you, I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it. I think spending time in the Word helps us understand just how true that is for our lives. Number 11, keep your eye on the gospel. As Russell prayed in his pastoral prayer this morning, the only reason why we have access to God is because He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to fix our relationship. The Bible tells us that before Christ saved us, our our throats were open graves. Rather than using our lips and our tongues to praise God, we used our speech to rebel against God. We were at enmity with God. The, the rot in our hearts overflowed out of our lips and into the world, our rebellion against God. But then he sent Jesus. And Jesus came and he walked perfectly in the will of his Father. And everything that he spoke was perfectly in line with the will of the Father. And he died on the cross and he paid the price for our sins, for our filthy, unclean, unholy, unworthy speech. And he made a way for us to be reconciled back to God again. He made, us, he made a way for us to have a, a relationship again. It's, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation with somebody where there was a big fight and the relationship was broken and now you just feel like you can't talk with them anymore, you know? Even if you feel like you love him from a distance, you feel like you just can't talk to him. You feel like you can't pick up the phone. When you see him out in public, it's awkward. Until maybe a third party comes along and sits you both down and brings reconciliation to the situation and fixes the, your ability to communicate with that person. Well, that's what Jesus Christ did. And now because of that, we can once again talk to our Father. 
I feel like my words are not sufficient. Uh, I feel like I can't generate enough, enough emotion. And even the, the desire to do so makes me feel uh, like it would be artificial. But just consider the fact that the God of the universe listens to you. The God who made the heavens and the earth, who raised up the mountains and laid low the valleys. The God who speaks galaxies and quasars into existence. He, he's not overwhelmed by X number of prayers at the same time. He hears every last word you have to say to him. And he's made a way for you to pray to him. Ephesians 3.12 says that in him, in Jesus, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Those are two things that we very rarely feel as we approach anybody to talk about anything. And if there's anyone in the world that we shouldn't feel freedom and confidence to approach, it's a holy and righteous God. But Jesus Christ has made a way for us to do that. All that we have to do is turn away from our sins, the things that were keeping us from God, and turn to Him in faith. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that God loves you, and He wants to hear from you. He wants to be in communication with you. He's not happy about this radio silence between Him and you. And He's calling on you now to fix it. I love the language of Hebrews. It says that we can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. And as blood-bought believers, that's what we do every time we close our eyes more importantly, as we bow our hearts, as Will said, and we approach God in prayer. Brothers and sisters, Jesus assumes, expects, and commands that we be praying. And he gives us the ability to do so with full assurance. So let's close in prayer now. Father, we, we recognize that you, you have to move. You have to move in our lives as individuals. You have to move in our, our corporate life as a church but we approach you with confidence and with boldness, asking that you would move, please, and that for the glory of your name and for our good and for the furtherance of the gospel amongst the lost peoples of the earth, that you would help us to pray more and to pray better. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Please stand with me.